Now, this is Box to Box with Michael Edgeley and Derek Dyson. Oh, what a goal! For Chemist Chemist Warehouse. Home of real brands and real savings. And Storage King. The kings of storage, moving and more. Hello and welcome to Box to Box, the show that is everything football. This week, you're with Michael Edgeley and Derek Dyson to run the rule over the past week in the world game as our regular co-host Rob Gilbert takes a well-earned break. First edition news with Willem van Denderen shortly. Then, Ange Postacoglu, Celtic raised the Scottish League Cup and the boys have attacked the January transfer window and they've landed three more J-League stars. What better time to speak to the Athletics' Kieran Devlin? And with the winter break and the SPL pulled forward, we'll assess the impact Ange has had at Celtic Park and look ahead to what's an incredibly congested fixture when the competition resumes, highlighted by what will be a mammoth on firm derby, which the boys, which will be the boys' fifth game in 17 days. Willem after that, with all the latest on the Matildas and the Socceroos, then we'll, t- we'll turn our attention to AFCON. The African Cup of Nations will be joined by Rob Stevens, a journalist with BB Sport Africa, who will preview the event and highlight for all of us the important issues facing the tournament. And of course, we'll wrap it up with an extended stoppage time, looking at all the interesting and sometimes quirky football issues at home and abroad. Welcome to Derek Dyson. What's been your highlight of the week gone by, Derek? Oh, uh, probably just recovering from COVID-19, Michael. Uh, It's been uh, a pretty full-on week. I was just getting the symptoms when we recorded this show last week, and I'm now at the the other side. Just thankful that myself and the family have come through it all relatively unscathed. That's great news that you've come through unscathed. You did tell us off air that it was a there was two or three uh, rough rough days there. So we're very pleased that your family and your little one, uh, Maeve, is well and truly uh, out of the woods, and we we'll welcome you back to the world. Uh, let's all let's get all of the latest football news with Willem Van Denderen. Thank you, Michael and Derek. Great to hear you're at the back end of your COVID journey. You and I had a brief chat throughout the week, and I can now inform you that somehow through the phone and through the many kilometres uh, of distance from which we live apart, you have somehow managed to pass it on to me, I think. So I'm at the very start of my uh, my COVID-19 journey. So looking forward to taking in plenty of football over the next week. Thought we'd start with a bit of a news update on the myriad of postponements going on across the A-League and A-League uh, men's and women's competitions. Very difficult to keep up at the moment. So I thought from the outset of the show, at the outset of the weekend, we'd have a look at what's gone on. So four matches have been postponed for round nine. Although Melbourne City and Western Sydney, this is in the men's competition, have been paired for an added fixture given both sides were available. The four postponements leave just that match and Wellington and Newcastle and Melbourne Victory and uh, Adelaide United. In the A-League women's, four of five round six matches are expected to go ahead. However, Newcastle Jets, their match against Melbourne Victory on Friday night has been postponed as they can't field a team given they're battling uh, an outbreak. So Friday against the victory is off. Michael, uh, just the one A-League men's match has gone down in the past week since we recorded the show. Uh, been a little bit frustrating, but there's always silver linings and I've taken in a, a little bit more of the A-League women's competition than I would normally have, which is always good and always refreshing to uh, have a look at uh, something different, but no Friday night match. That is going to sting this weekend. We're just experiencing what the world's experiencing. We just have to accept there's going to be a degree of it's disruption and uh, the, the fixtures will be bounced around and uh, teams will have long breaks and then play a, play a number of games in short periods of time. There's really not much we can do about it. The only other alternative, Willem, would be to maybe postpone the season for a period of time and I'm not in favour of that. What about you? No, we've done that. We've been through that. Danny Townsend and the APL went strong on the fact that they're not going to do that unless absolutely necessary. So no, keep rolling on and play whenever you can because none, or some or rather, are better than none. The big international story of the week is that the African Cup of Nations kicks off in the early hours of Monday with hosts Cameroon to play Burkina Faso in Olembe. Algeria arrive as defending champions less than a month after picking up the Arab Cup, while Comoros and the Gambia are the first uh, are the two first time entrance to the tournament. Like the Asian Cup, the timing, though, is a little bit out of step with domestic leagues and there's always consternation. And we've seen that this time around, Derek, with Watford, who have done all they can to keep Ismail Assar from joining Senegal, although, begrudgingly, they have had to let him go. This tournament, when it was originally meant to be played, was going to be in the off-season. So, to be fair, it's only the rescheduling of this tournament that's put it back in the 
the in the middle of the uh, the European football season. But I'm sure we'll talk with our guest later on about the scant disregard that the Premier League clubs, fans, etc., seem to have for what is uh, a bona fide and important uh, tournament. Uh, <clears throat> fans of the big clubs seem to be happy to take the best of Africa when it comes to their teams, but then don't are not happy to uh, to to give back. And that's exactly what Watford were trying to do with with his male Asar. But as you said, he injured or no, he will go. It's pretty clear there in the rules, isn't it? Under FIFA rules, clubs must release players during international windows if selected, even if injured, so they can be assessed by the nation's medical staff. And Watford were pretty cheeky, I thought, in uh, saying, no, we're not going to let him go, but we will invite uh, a, a physio to come and have a look at them themselves, but uh, he's not going there. So, yeah, pretty cheeky from Watford, and they haven't gotten away with it. Uh, transfer news, Kieran Trippier is set to become the first signing of Newcastle United's new era after the club agreed to a £12 million deal with Atletico. Trippier uh, joined Atletico from Tottenham for £20 million in 2019 and will now link up again with Eddie Howe, who he played for at Burnley a decade ago. Derek, reports out of the UK suggest Newcastle have also approached Arsenal about Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang, offering a loan-to-buy deal valued at £20 million. Now, we know he's out in the cold and uh, a move away probably looks likely. But do you see this one going ahead, Derek, especially considering that Newcastle need goals now, not in three to four weeks uh, when he might arrive, given he's now with Gabon? It'll be interesting to see how if Obama Yang is reintegrated back into the Arsenal squad at least for uh, the remainder of this season. But he's crossed Mikel Arteta, and Mikel Arteta has proven that, that uh, you know, the little dictator that he is, that uh, if you cross him, you don't you don't tend to, to, to come back. So, yeah, you're right. In a way, if Aubameyang was free now, it could make sense for both clubs. Arsenal could let someone go off the books that, this, that they maybe don't see contributing to the team for the rest of the year. And as you said, Newcastle badly needs someone at the at the top end, particularly with the injuries that they've had recently to Sam Maxim and uh, and, and Wilson. But no, I'll be I, I, I'll I will wait and see whether this one happens, William. It's too early to tell. Wrapping up the Suzuki Cup, Thailand have wrapped it up themselves for a sixth time uh, after a two-all draw in the second leg of the final against Indonesia. Alexandra Polking's ties had taken a 4-0 lead into the second leg, but found themselves behind early after a goal to Ricky Kumbaya. Lovely turn from Witan Sulaiman. Ricky Kumbaya! It slipped down! Indonesia has got that goal with a large slice of luck! Ricky Kumbaya has struck early here! And has that given them just a little bit of hope? To be a goal up, Michael, was a pretty good effort for Indonesia, considering that it had four players from the first leg ruled out due to COVID protocols. Thailand, however, worked back and got into the ascension through Adisak Kraysorn and Sarak Yuyen. But Indonesia eventually leveled it up on what was home soil for them. Uh, so a bit of pride in front of their home fans through Eji Maluanu Vikri. Uh, so, Michael, their sixth title for Thailand and a sixth final loss, unfortunately, uh, for Indonesia. They keep climbing the mountain but just can't get to the summit. They did, however, get the Fair Play Award, which I'm sure is cold comfort. And ironically, Vietnam are not happy that uh, Indonesia got the Fair Play Award. They thought it was for them. Well, interesting. Um, Eagle-listened, uh, eagle-eared listeners will know that I've been on assignment in Bangkok, Thailand. So I got to uh, enjoy the experience uh, here in Bangkok as uh, people were tooting horns and uh, cheering as the goals went in, in, in the first league, primarily when they scored a, a 4 0 win. Uh, what was interesting was that in the days after, uh, plenty of young people uh, wearing their elephant, war elephant uh, shirts around town. And, uh, and, and it is a, a great uh, event for Southeast Asian football. And um, it's growing in stature. And uh, the Suzuki Cup. Um, uh, will return to Thailand for a sixth time, as you mentioned, Willem. So uh, they're well and truly uh, continuing the dominance of, uh, of that event uh, is the ties. And the big story out of this for me um, definitely was Malaysia not qualifying for the semifinals. That was huge. And Indonesia, obviously, getting to the mountain, as you said, for the sixth time and not being able to pull it off. Uh, Asian Southeast Asian football uh, is healthy, uh, developing and improving. And I uh, always enjoyed just... Uh, enjoyed being a little bit a little bit of it uh, over here in Bangkok. 
And what's the general sentiment around the side, Michael? Obviously, they've just won a, another Suzuki Cup, so there'd have to be uh, great optimism, but particularly in the broad picture as well under Alexandra Polking. They did a, a great job to reach the final round of the Asian qualifiers of the 2018 World Cup. We were all there and uh, at Amy Park when they shocked Australia and nearly took some points, and they put themselves about. So they would have been quite disappointed to have then fallen back a rung effectively and uh, and missed out for the 2022 final round of the AFC qualifiers. So there must be optimism that they can go forward again. Yeah, there is. Obviously, people in my network will are deeply engaged in football so they are very very disappointed that thailand didn't make the final stage of qualifying for 2022 qatar uh, that's been a, a big blow to them the, the team will, will about to uh, enter a, a period of transition there's about five players that will probably hang up their boots as a result of this suzuki cup triumph and they will look to rebuild for the next uh, fifa world cup uh, program, um, but their you know European coach uh, he's he's much loved. Uh, the team does play a very expansive and open style of football, and importantly, like uh, all Southeast Asian nations, they're only as strong as their local league, and their local league continues to grow and foster. Television rights uh, have uh, recently been increased in the local Thai league, as well as um, there's some new owners and some money from the Middle East has come into some of the clubs. So uh, may, that may uh, help the development of Thai football. But uh, I think they're on the move still, even though they're not part of the, the, this final phase of World Cup qualification. I do think the league and, more importantly, uh, the national football for Thailand's on the move. And you can see that with the development of their women's program as well. Now, Ed, you're over in uh, Bangkok and you're reading different newspapers to me. So you've got a little bit of different news as well to start with on Barclays. Absolutely. Barclays have signed a new three-year, £30 million partnership deal with the Women's Super League and the W Championship. This doubles the existing sponsorship arrangement uh, for women's football at the top level. So a big shout-out and well-played Barclays and it just proves that women's football continues to move. A bit of FIFA news too, Willem. I've got uh, President uh, Gianni Infantino released his New Year message. I know Derek would have been uh, just waiting by the radio like, uh, like a good Englishman listening to Churchill in the days gone by. He didn't let an opportunity slip for a second and he had made a not-too-subtle dig at his biannual FIFA World Cup opponent. He said 2022 will be a year of action, but it will also be a year of dialogue. The new FIFA is a democratic body, and together with our stakeholders, we will design the path for football's future, making the game fit for purpose in the modern era and ensuring that we can boost global competitiveness. To do that, we can on the collective unity and strength among the football community in order to ensure that the future of our sport is globally sustainable. We can on the vast majority who is looking forward to new exciting opportunities to dream, to develop the game, to feel truly part of the global football community. And we count on, on those at the top to show solidarity without which even football at its most elite would not exist. After the break, we'll be joined by the Athletics' Kieran Devlin to take a close look at the rise and rise of Ange Postacoglu, Tom Rogic, purple patch of form, and could Martin Boyle be joining the boys? Don't go away. We'll be back talking Celtic shortly. Box to box. Can you believe it? For Chemist Warehouse. Home of real brands and real savings. And Storage King. The kings of storage, moving and more. And this could be the most crucial goal Last Christmas, I gave you my heart, but the very next day, you gave it away. This year, to save me from tears, I'll give it to Poster Coglu. That's my very best impersonation of the Celtic fans on the terraces. Uh, the Celtic fans break out into this uh, serenade to reinforce the meteoric rise in popularity that Australian Ange Postacoglu has had with the Celtic Path Faithful. To discuss this and much, much more, welcome back to Box to Box, the Athletics' Kieran Devlin. Hi, Kieran. Would I get a, a welcome on the terraces at Celtic Park? I think you smashed it, yeah. I think I think you'll be welcomed with open arms. <laughs> That's fantastic. Well, converting doubters into believers, uh, it wasn't that long ago when Ange, the, the mention of Ange Postacoglu was openly mocked by the Scottish football community. Despite a CV overflowing with success, now the same critics use the term Ange Ball in daily vernacular and fans are serenading Postacoglu from the terraces. How did the conversion happen, uh, Kieran? What... what what did Ange do that uh, has just uh, evoked a grand swell of love? I think it's probably 
threefold. Um, I guess well, actually there's four. They'd say there's four reasons. That is the the first one is. I, I, he's an incredibly charismatic guy. He's a very lovely guy, and I think having I do I think it does make an impact having someone who is very very sincerely and very evidently a good person, a very kind and compassionate guy. As and it's not as um as significant as the other factors, which obviously include really beautiful, entertaining, exciting football and tangible success, which he now has. He's won his first silverware. His first time of asking, he's won the first silverware in the League Cup. Um, and that's that is obviously a massive thing as well for Celtic fans. Um, and the the other thing I think that um, people have really won over by him is his honesty and directness. I do think that's a trait. Um, I, I used to I used to work in in London um, before before this job, and I worked with a, a few Australians. And I think one thing we agreed on is that Australians and Scottish people we like our directness. We we don't like to um, to to scut around the point. We like to be upfront and honest, even if it's uh, uh, brutally so. So I think that's something that like, the Celtic fans really appreciate, especially in an industry where they can be a bit um, vague a lot of the time. So I think th- there's just a real connection between the fans and Ange on an emotional level, but also you know, just look at the, the, some of the quality of football he's playing and the fact that they're winning a lot. And there's something, 13 of the last 15 domestic games they've won, despite having at the last, by the time the winter break started, 16 first-team absences, including through injuries or COVID-related absences. So it's pretty, it's pretty an astonishing achievement that he's overcome while maintaining the, that relationship with the fans. One thing he has delivered as well, Kieran, is a trophy. I mean, the uh, Celtic trophy cabinet is hardly bare, uh, but it had been a little while since... Uh, someone in the hoops was able to to lift a piece of silverware it is quote unquote only the league cup but how, how much do you rate that as an achievement for Ange in his first season and what significance do you put against it i think it's massive and, and you know there's a lot of people not necessarily criticizing it but they're trying to you know dial it down and say oh the celtic have the biggest wage budget in the country they should you know they won 12 consecutive trophies this should this should this should not be a big deal and they're right but Ange inherited such a monumental mess in the summer. They lost their best striker, they lost their captain, they lost their best defender, and they lost their best mid- well, their second best midfielder after Cal McGregor and Ryan Christie. Their their first team squad was gutted, and in all honesty, if I'm being completely blunt, the recruitment in the summer wasn't amazing. They obviously had some really good players like Kyogo joining and Philippe Jota and others who have done well like Joseph Juranovic and Cameron Carter-Vickers. But it's there was. I'd say there's possibly more players who haven't made a massive impact than those who have. And he's navigated that all um, amazingly. And you can see, obviously, silverware is a massive, massive boost, especially since a lot of these players that are playing right now, I think there was, I think I counted maybe only six or seven of them um, that have played, have, were involved in Celtic's last title win. Like the, the, the level of squad turnover over the last two years has been massive. And you know, there's a lot of the, a lot of these guys are under the age of 23. A lot of them had never won any silverware before. So to do that the first time in asking, um, I think to paraphrase the captain Callum McGregor, you know, it gives them that that hunger, that drive for more silverware. And I think, as you guys know, that's something Ange really likes to uh, introduce and to enable that that drive for success. And there was he had a really good comment after. Um, after the cup final where he says we win this one and we move on to the next one which I think that was another thing the Celtic fans lapped up because there's oh yeah he gets it he gets that you know that you know the like the the cliche about the the shark swimming where you know if, if it stays still for a moment it dies it needs to keep going it needs to be still hungry for more success that's how the growth of Celtic should be. Kieran let's have a word about those three signings who have come from Japan in a bit of a Christmas present package deal. Daisa Maeda who can slot in anywhere across the front three. Uh, Yosuke Itaguchi who comes with a bit of a chip on his shoulder having uh, uh, not quite cut it in Leeds last time he was over in the UK and uh, Rio Hatate who's very versatile across the back line and midfield. Uh, how have they all settled into training and at what point can we uh, expect to see them in the hoops on the field? I think the uh, Maeda and Idiguchi, I believe, would have just started training this week because there was the winter break and everyone everyone was on holiday. Um, Hatate, I think, I think he's just in the UK. I don't think he's in, um, he's not had his unveiling yet and I don't think he's start, started on training yet. Um, I, 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 from my understanding, like the, the thing, well, the one thing an agent told me is that Maeda is 
blisteringly quick, <laughs> which I, I think you can, you know, if you're watching, I watched a bit of him, the analysis tool, Y Scout, and obviously in highlights combinations of his, of his goals from last season, you can tell he's incredibly quick. But I think he will be a really good foil for someone like Jota on the other side, who, um, uh, you know, if Jota's going to hug the touchline, that creates more space for Maeda to make those really clever runs in behind. Um, and I think Edi, I think I'm really fascinated about Hatati and Idiguchi because um, Tommy Rogic, well, you know, he's he's been incredible. Like it's, I think it's, he's uh, for December when Celtic had six or other seven um, attacking, you know, the front three options injured. Rogic was involved in six of their twelve December goals, so he really stepped up, and he's just been, you know, a revelation under Ange. But I think what was this? he's really had to be because um, that sort of uh, and advanced midfielder that you know the so-called number eights. Tommy isn't you know he's not a natural for that. He is more of a you know old school um, playmaker, an old school number ten. Whereas Hatate seems to be a perfect fit for that. And so I'm just really excited to see the two of them together. It'll be a shame for David Turnbull, but I just feel you can't drop Rogic as it is, and I think Hatate is going to be a perfect fit. And then Idiguchi is just he's he's a really fascinating one because I think he gives you something a bit different. He's a very aggressive. Um, very clever defensive midfielder, though he's technically gifted as well. So I think he's just like he's just a really smart squad option that I'm excited to see what he, the plan for him is as well. And another transfer rumor that's just sort of broken through here in Australia is that Martin Boyle of Hibernian, obviously someone close to our hearts, uh, could be in the sights of Ange as well. Uh, it seems like there might not be a lot of room with Maeda for Ahashi uh, and possibly the permanent signing of Jota. So how much credibility should we give to what would certainly be pretty exciting uh, rumors for us here in Australia? So it's one that pops up every year because Boyle is very, you know, he's very clearly one of the best of the rest, if you're going to use that term. He is very definitely one of the best players outside the Celtic Rangers duopoly. There is, there is, there is interest there, but um, I'm not sure how far it will go. I know Hibs will command a pretty big fee for him. Um, they are they're a club who are very conscious of their, their players' values and their, their players' worth. Um, so I think it would be a pretty big, a big fee, and and I'm, I'm I personally I'd, I'm not entirely sure if it will happen or not. But I think I think he'd be I think he'd be a decent player who could definitely contribute to Celtic, and obviously it'd be quite exciting to see him uh, flourish under Foster Coglu as well. Just on Tom Rogic, um, Kieran, uh, I mean he was having all sorts of problems before Foster Coglu arrived. Um, I'd just be interested in your um, your observations, the Rogic prior to. Postacoglu arriving and the Rogic after, and just whether their existing relationship has um, has uh, played a role in his resurgence, or is it just a matter of him pulling his finger out and getting his body right? I think I think it's, it's both, and like he's finishing. Um, I think he's the football he's playing now is better even than the football he was playing under. You know, his, fin- his final final season with Ron Adela and his first two seasons with um, Brendan Rodgers. He's, he's he's finishing games you know, ninety minutes of games quite comfortably now, whereas in the even at his peak under Rogers and and Dyla, he he was always the first guy subbed off about sixty five minutes seventy minutes. His fitness he's he's as fitter than he's ever been. He's as he's as confident as he's ever been. And I think a big thing is you know but you know and as as much as he's like very clever tactically as he squeezes every last drop of of talent from you. He is also a motivator. He's a man manager as well, and I do, and I understand that has been a big factor with with, with Tommy. Um, I don't know if you, if you guys heard, but like I was told that he Celtic had accepted a bid from a Qatari club um, this um, last summer, as in as in not well the summer of twenty twenty um, to be exact. Um, but it was Tommy that turned turned them down because he wanted to stay at Celtic because he wanted even though he was going to get a massive wage increase, but he wanted to give Celtic one more go. I think that's just like a really heartwarming um, arc to his career. Obviously, this season he did stay was a complete disaster, and he did he got very limited game time under Neil Lennon. But to to have this as you know the hopefully he now thinks of it as being worth it, even if he's you know he would have got more money in Qatar. You know he's he's very much he loves his he loves going back to Australia. He's very much he gets home homesick a fair bit. And he would have been, you know, with in Qatar, he would have been a lot closer to home. He could have fly more regularly. And I just hopefully this really vindicates his decision to say, and I hope I hope he's really loving it. 
Yeah, absolutely. My, my, one of my favourite uh, stories about Tom Rogic is, is one of those times he has had injuries. The club gave him uh, permission to return home for two weeks. This was pre-COVID and he was back in Australia with his family for two weeks and he just appeared by himself at two o'clock in the morning uh, on a Sunday morning um, and uh, he went to, to the pub where all the Celtic fans in Sydney get together and watch the game and uh, he just turned up. And he had a soda water and he watched the game with the fans and he left. I think that says something about uh, Tom Rogic, unless he didn't have the uh, appropriate subscription service at home, which I don't believe that would be the case because I'm sure his parents would have been watching him every week. But uh, that, that's obviously a bit of an insight into how much he does um, buy into the Celtic, uh, uh, you know, his time there and uh, the relationship with his club. So um, thanks, Kieran, for that insight. All Australian football fans, we're taking a really special interest in Celtic these days uh, with obviously, and the Australian links between your club uh, and uh, and Australia continue to grow. Um, and after the break, uh, Willem van Denderen will be back with all the latest Socceroos and Matildas news. Box to box. For Chemist Warehouse, home of real brands and real savings, and Storage King, the kings of storage, moving and more. And this could be the most crucial goal of all. Welcome back to Box to Box, the show that's everything football. As we go from one end of the pitch to the other, you're with Michael Edgley, Derek Dyson and Willem van Denderen this week. Now, as we do in segment three each week. We'll take a close look at all the latest Socceroos and Matildas news. Over to you, Willem. Thank you, Michael. Yes, it is Socceroos and Matilda Central for the Green and Gold Army. Make sure... I'm going to do this again, sorry. Thanks, Michael. It is, of course, Socceroos and Matilda Central for the Green and Gold Army. Make sure you're on the mailing list to be among the first to know when packages go on sale for this year's World Cup. With options available to see the best of the Middle East or take in a football feast, there is something for everyone. So head to ggatravel.com.au. Michael, how are the packages coming along? Yeah, they're coming along really well. We'll be launching them uh, soon, uh, just after the uh, next international break. And uh, we're looking forward to, obviously... um, the World Cup and the return of uh, normalcy. Once we get through this little Omicron period, I still have my uh, rose-coloured glasses on, Willem. I think that uh, the spike will be high and the decline will be great. And then hopefully um, at the back end of that, we can uh, resume our life. And that includes getting on a plane and going to see some football in Qatar. Let's have a look at the Socceroos. And Aaron Moy might just be coming into form in the right or at the right time, considering uh, with national team considerations on the agenda. He and Shanghai Port have picked up a draw and a win in the final week of the Chinese Super League, sealing automatic qualification for the Asian Champions League. Aaron was on the score sheet again in the two-all draw with Shandong Luang before a 1-0 win on the final day. Saw them leapfrog Guangzhou Evergrande in two seconds. So a great little finish to the season there after such a long period in the wilderness. Uh, for Aaron. Great to see that it's finished off in a positive manner. Also on the score sheet this week was Nikita Rukovica, who's netted twice for Hapoel Beersheba in their 3-0 league win in Israel. After his extraordinary goal-scoring record with Maccabi Haifa, this is Nikita's first season with Beersheba and he's doing it again. He scored seven in their last eight to help them sit first. Michael, where is he in the Socceroos reckoning at the minute? He still seems like he's just a a peripheral uh, bench option, but this goal-scoring record, uh, it is increasingly hard to ignore. Yes, he's doing really well, isn't he? And he has been a, a fixture of squads, but he, he just seems to get that sort of three or four minutes at the end of a game, if anything. So, oh, look, I still think um, Boyle and uh, and Leckie and um, and uh, maybe McLaren and uh, our good mate in Japan, Adam Taggart, uh, are still ahead of him, but uh, who knows uh, what Graham Martin will do in the next two games. Riley McGree's time at Birmingham has, unfortunately, from our perspective, come to an end. He will head to Charlotte for their inaugural MLS season, which begins on February 27. So that's going to be a, a bit of a bit of a stopgap in his progress. Not that the not to degrade the standard of football in the MLS, but uh, to not be playing regular football until the end of Feb. Uh, it's going to be a little bit frustrating, I'm sure. Uh, better news, though, for Thomas Deng. He's going to be staying in Japan after leaving Urawa Reds, signing with J2 side Alberex Niigata. Nagata finished sixth in J2 in 2021. And great news, Michael. They get to start next season in first as their top alphabetically. That's fantastic. Just while you talk about J-League 2, um, a big shout-out to Pete Klamowski, who, with his club, uh, Montito Yamagata, he's turning them from relegation contenders into promotion hopefuls and as uh, getting on a good run of results. So a big shout-out to Peter Klamowski, another Australian coach making his way. And I've just got a little, uh, also a little inquiring, uh, Willem, that we need to take a close look at this Scottish mid-season winter break because when, you know, it's been brought forward, so when the matches return, 
there's going to be some club versus country clashes and obviously the fixtures for Hibs and Celtic. Uh, for our, um, obviously, self-interest being Martin Boyle and Tom Rogic. I just wonder what pressure will come on those players and, uh, you know, when they'll be released to travel over to Australia for the match against Vietnam. And uh, all of that will be sort of uh, an interesting byplay as we lead into what's going to be a fantastic World Cup qualifier match against Vietnam at the Melbourne Rectangular Stadium, sometimes called Amy Park. Um, and we might note that the initial ticket allocation for that match has been exhausted. We know there's a little one coming, but at the moment it looks like being a sellout. So that's something obviously to look forward to on January 27, Willem. Yeah, 95% uh, full, Michael, I believe. Very, very exciting indeed. Uh, you would think if it's a club versus country battle for Tom Rogic, you'd think if there's one man who's going to be sympathetic towards the Australian cause, it would be uh, Ange Postacoglu. Speaking of Ange, Michael, a passing this weekend, or this week rather, at South Melbourne Hellas, that of Ulysses Kokonos, who was a, a legend of Victorian football, really, past aged 73. He was the glamour boy of Hellas in the 60s and 70s. He drew George Best comparisons, both uh on and off the pitch for the right and the wrong reasons, if you like, uh, on his way to 33 goals in 75 games. And uh, it's been a remarkable life. It's always good to uh, reflect when these things happen. He was born in Istanbul, then moved to Greece. And then when he was 16, uh, he came to Australia solo. Uh, Post-career, he spent time in jail for blackmail and drugs charges, but he eventually put it together again and he settled in Mordialic in Melbourne's southeast. Michael, I'm sure you'd, you'd like to take a moment to reflect. I would, actually. He was a silky, enigmatic striker, and Australia's first official football playboy, no doubt about that. Uh, the South Melbourne faithful absolutely idolised him. Uh, he was obviously born of Greek heritage, but in Istanbul in Turkey, and people uh, who study uh, history will know that uh, there was a period of time, a very ugly period of time in Turkey, and Kokonos was 15 when his family was forced to flee Turkey and uh, and re- effectively just you know packed four or five suitcases. They left behind a... A, a very successful retail business and all of their bank accounts were nationalised by the Turks at that time. So they effectively left their lives behind. Um, Kokonos talks about that time extensively in um, some interviews he's done in the Greek Australian press. He talks about his father going grey in three weeks. Uh, uh, he wasn't grey before they left uh, Turkey, but he was grey in Greece. It was an incredibly stressful time. But uh, Kokonos, he always had a thirst for adventure and he stowed away on the ship Patras. He had no passport and no change of clothes and he hid and by the time he was found, it was too late for the boat to turn around and workers on board the ship supported him through the trip to Fremantle. Uh, They gave him, they passed that around, they gave him some money uh, and a train ticket to Melbourne. And uh, when he got to Melbourne, he met a local priest daughter, Sula, who took him in and it wasn't long before he was signed by South Melbourne Hellas. He came and went from Hellas five times during his career. He had stints back in Athens with Pathanaikos, uh, obviously the big uh, Greek superpower. And um, he also had a stint at crosstown rivals Alexander and even Juventus. Um, and like some footballing magicians, Kokonos had battles with the law, he had battles with alcohol, he had battles with gambling. And Derek, he had more girlfriends than you've had hot lunches. However, he was much loved by the Greek Australian footballing community. He was a legendality, a legend and a personality to boot. Uh, vale Ulysses Kokonos, he died age 73. Uh, yeah, and there was a cracking write up in The Guardian in uh, 2015, so before he passed. But yeah, love the little biography by Patrick Skeen, it's well worth going and checking out. And uh, yeah, well, as the years have gone on, Michael, he's been most closely associated with South Melbourne. He didn't mind uh, getting around, didn't mind a transfer fee, 14 transfer fees. He pocketed over 16 years at 10 different clubs, and he did go through Fitzroy Alexander, Sydney Hakoa, Melbourne Juventus, uh, Panathinaikos, and a, a couple of other clubs in Greece. But uh, yeah, didn't mind pocketing a bit of cash if uh, it was coming his way. No, that's right. Uh, he, he knew how to work the system. But I just think his story about stowing away in the Patras... Uh, is one of legend and that sort of just uh, uh, bodes to the type of personality he was. He's much loved. Uh, I mean, even the Ale- he was only at Alexander for a short time, but, uh, you know, uh, my time at the club, the fans uh, talked about uh, his, uh, his few games at the club has been very memorable. And uh, he was a ball player. He was uh, silky skilled and, uh, and 
did exceptionally well wherever he played. Well said, Michael. Let's uh, move on to the A-League men's competition. Just the one match uh, was played this week, as I mentioned, and that was Adelaide putting four past Wellington, and it could well have been uh, a fair few more. Craig Goodwin getting into brilliant touch. He scored two penalties, and he scored he scored the opener, and George Blackwood claimed it. It brushed his bootlace. Uh, not sure if you've seen the footage, but it was very, very cheeky indeed from George Blackwood. So the good news for Adelaide is that Craig Goodwin's getting into some serious form. The bad news, though, Michael, is that they've sold both Ben Halloran and Stefan Mork. Now, Adelaide have always been a selling club uh, that goes back to, or not always, but over the past five or so years, goes back to the mantra put in place by Bruce Jitte. But they're selling young players, and then there's selling just about your two best players, Goodwin aside, mid-season. Yeah, they're selling the farm, isn't it? Um uh, look, we understand the role of the A-League in the football pyramid. It is a development pathway. And if you know Stefan Mork and Ben Halloran, I mean, who would you to stand in their way as a um, to, to better their careers? And that's fantastic news for them. But if you're an Adelaide United fan and you grow up on the terraces, you'd be disappointed. Uh, they are players that are much loved and, uh, you know, almost franchise players there. They've given great service to the club. Mork's your captain. Um, yeah, you'd have to say you'd have question marks over uh, the decision-making process and in particular the timing of that. Uh, I know uh, if I was an Adelaide fan, committed, passionate, paid up, I'd be disappointed. Yeah, you would be. It's it's a great move for Halloran. It's a great move for both, but you can understand it uh, from Halloran's perspective. So he's 29. He, of course, went to the 2014 World Cup and was given those opportunities uh, probably ahead of time. I think he admitted on this very program a little while ago, but he's gone on to be a really, really uh, consistent season senior footballer at this level. And yeah, to go to a club as big as FC Seoul, uh, I don't think they were going to stand in his way. They did try and stand in the way of Stefan Mork, though. They tried to sell him, uh, sign him to what was apparently the biggest deal ever offered uh, at the club, but he's still going to be on his way, uh, likely to Japan. So, look, it's still good business. That's the second time they've actually sold him. In 2016, he went to NEC Neymagen in Holland. They made a bit of cash out of him there, and they'll make cash out of him this time by letting him go uh, six, with six months to go in his contract. So you can understand it, but yeah, uh, selling the farm, I think, is a, a pretty good way to put it. Let's move on to the women's competition. We've had a couple of matches in the past week and I want to start with Melbourne victory against Brisbane Raw Michael Katrina Gorry uh, she's played 90 minutes across the last two weeks we know her, we know her story having given birth less than six months ago and see she is seriously uh, back in business with what was a belting goal let's take a listen now Hecker gets things moving it's Katrina Gorry oh what a goal what a goal from Katrina Gorry that's what she's made of that's real Matilda's quality and they're all square Brisbane. What a goal from Katrina Gorry. Uh, well and truly. And if you watch the uh, celebration there, she was uh, so happy when she scored that goal. Obviously, Brisbane have got Katrina Gorry and Larissa Crummer, two of the uh, former Matildas Crummer, who's had a horrible run with injuries, also played a, a good game. But let's uh, not chirk around. Let's not beat around the bush. Let's not chirk the big story out of that game. It was a 4-2 result. Uh, Melbourne victory 2-0 up. Uh, well and truly steamrolled um, Kyra Cooney-Cross getting a red card. Uh, questionable decision, but she did make a, a choice to, uh, to to go over the ball and uh, and make a tackle on Crummer, which was eventually given a red card for. Uh, but the goalkeeping, four of the six goals were goalkeeping errors. Let's not shirk it. Uh, both goalkeepers had, uh, had poor games, and uh, that's one area of the women's game that gets a lot of criticism. And uh, you would think that, uh, you know, we just got to continually get better in that. But... Uh, Ultimately, uh, well played to Brisbane. They scored four goals after being 2-0 behind and uh, and took the points. And uh, Jeff Hopkins and the list that he's got at uh, Melbourne Victory, there's some more uh, scratching of the head and he'll have to go back to the uh, Brains Trust and uh, work through his defensive ailings. Bearing in mind, they had three players unavailable with COVID. Uh, one was their first-choice goalkeeper. One was Alex Chidiak as well. They've also got a long injury list, including... Um, last year's top goal scorer, Molina, is. So, uh, yeah, look, it'll be interesting to see what uh, Melbourne Victory can do to, to reorganise and uh, and get uh, back on track for the second half of the season because you'd have to say they're behind the front runners at the moment, Sydney FC, who are just going along very, very nicely. Well, on to Sydney FC. They put five past Wellington and the first of those came just four minutes in from Rachel Lowe with a goal. Michael, the, all you can really say is boom. 
It was a fantastic goal. Rachel is a very talented player, extremely technical, technically gifted. And uh, I actually had a chat to her during the week. I said, how did it feel? She said, I like the ones that sit up. I like a volley. She said, I laced it. But it was uh, she didn't smash it. Just beautiful timing. And uh, it uh, went into the top corner. Well done, Rachel. Um, she's one to watch. Uh, definitely a player that I think has the capacity to uh, play for the Matildas in a very key eight or ten starting role. And... Um, um, Rachel, Mary Fowler, and uh, Carly Rosback and were and Kyra Kernicross were the, the big players out of their sort of junior development curves. So I'm expecting Rachel, who's had uh, some ups and downs over the recent uh, little period, to hit some form and um, and uh, well and truly challenge for a place in the Matildas come uh, 2023 World Cup. Should also be a word for Mackenzie Hawksby, who scored a hat-trick in this one. So, Sydney, they are sitting on top. You wonder if maybe, though, it's just a little bit misleading, not to take away from what they've done so far, but of their four wins, two have come against Wellington, and they've uh, pumped up the goals for tally on those occasions. So if you take that away, I think Melbourne City would probably have something to say about top spot at this point. But, yep, no, it's been very good so far in the A-League women's. Michael, back to you. Absolutely. Well, we hope you're enjoying this week's episode. Please make sure you subscribe to Box to the Box wherever you listen to great podcasts. And if you have Twitter or Facebook, give us a like or a follow. We'd appreciate that very much. Box to Box. Can you believe it? For Chemist Warehouse. Home of real brands and real savings. And Storage King. The kings of storage, moving and more. And this could be the most crucial goal. Welcome back to Box to Box, the show that is everything football from one end of the pitch to the other. We're now going to immerse ourselves in discussion about AFCON, the African Cup of Nations first held in 1957. AFCON is an event not to be missed on the football calendar. Egypt are the all-time heavyweights of the event with seven titles, and Algeria are the reigning champions. To, to dive into the depths of the 22 edition of AFCON. We're joined by Rob Stevens of BB Sport Africa, a very warm Southern Hemisphere. Welcome to you, Rob. Thanks for joining us on Box to Box. Thanks for having me, guys. Uh, Rob, African football is utterly fascinating, but the likes, but like Asian football, uh, where, where we play, uh, on the world stage, um, they're yet to fulfil its potential. Only Senegal in 2002 and Ghana in 2010 have made it to FIFA World Cup quarterfinals. Is there a team in this edition of AFCON that can dazzle enough to be a serious threat in Doha come November? Wow, that is a big question. But what is so tough about African football is the fact that only five countries qualify for the World Cup. That'll change in the future when the tournament's expanded. At the moment, you'd have to say that Algeria, the holders and Senegal, who were runners-up last time, are the two standout teams for this edition uh, of AFCON. Um, it's a fairly open field. A few of the other countries have, have underperformed in the World Cup qualifiers. They might have changed coach mid-qualifiers or after-qualifiers. Uh, Ghana and Nigeria in particular are two of the heavyweights. Um, so in a way, it's, kind of, it's going to be interesting to see once the tournament starts, which teams click, which teams have all their players available. Some are, some are losing players to COVID, sadly. Um, Cameroon are obviously the host for this time around. Tony Conte-Sal's got a decent squad. Uh, they've got to worry about Eric Maxim Choupo-Moting, the Bayern Munich forward. He picked up a knee injury. They, he had scans on that earlier in the week. So will he be fit for the opening game? And then other than that, you look at previous winners, Ivory Coast. Uh, they aren't having too, too good of a time right now. They missed out. They're not going to be at the World Cup in Qatar. Uh, Egypt, you mentioned there, the heavyweights, they've got Mo Salah. Other than that, can they get the rest of the team together to, to compete? But it, it should be a fascinating tournament for sure. And uh, Rob, any any lingering doubts at any of the, the different challenges that this tournament faced uh, in the weeks and months leading up to it? The uh, the, the, the sort of security situation there, COVID-19, the readiness of the stadiums, is everything resolved now? And, and are we expecting to see a relatively seamless tournament? Uh, not quite. Um, cases are still rising in terms of COVID. Um, Cape Verde this morning, sorry, I shouldn't say this morning. Cape Verde have said that uh, their coach, Bubista, has tested positive. Uh, they had to call off a friendly because they had lost all three goalkeepers. Uh, one of them uh, has still got the virus, so he might be missing at the weekend. They've got a few other players who who aren't travelling to Cameroon. Uh, Tunisia, one of their players, uh, Sofadin Jaziri, he's tested positive as well. 
So I, I think sadly it's going to be a case of clubs adapting and uh, and having to deal with that. Uh, attendances are going to be capped at about eighty percent for Cameroon matches, sixty percent for other matches. Fans have got to uh, have proof of vaccination and a negative test to uh, to get into matches as well. In terms of the security issue, uh, that's down in Limbe, which is uh, part of the region where there's been some sort of civil war. Uh, pseudo civil war fighting there. Uh, some uh, some fighters wanting to form a breakaway state called Ambazonia. Um, apparently, the violence there has killed around uh, three thousand people and forced about a million to flee from that region since fighting broke out in twenty seventeen. There are worries about security in that region, but uh, the the security forces are uh, confident that the tournament will go ahead with uh, without any any issues, and and one can hope that that's the case. One of the other major storylines that's been uh, developing during during the build-up has been the, the as you said, that the, all the teams trying to assemble their European-based players. And and if we even look at the the, the Premier League, uh, Watford were said to have been quote bearing teeth at uh, Senegal in terms of uh, releasing uh, Ismail Assar, uh, who's claimed to be injured but has been released eventually for this for this tournament. Um, on the whole, the uh, African nation seems to have won that 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 power struggle, and lots of people have come out, Ian Wright and others, and sort of criticised the, um, I suppose, the prevailing sort of paradigm around uh, this tournament not being important, and that suddenly, uh, you know, that that Premier League clubs shouldn't be uh, giving up their players at a, at a crucial time of the year. Well, how has this kind of been covered and received in in Africa? Yeah, I mean, there, there's been a lot, a lot of, lot of chat about the timing of the tournament, uh, and it's it's difficult for European leagues where many Africans now play, uh, and in terms of the African diaspora, a lot of uh, African countries are drawing players from from Europe, so it's tricky. Um, Afcon has always traditionally been in January. Uh, this edition was originally supposed to be in June, July last year. Um, but then it was moved because of the Cameroonian rainy season. It was moved from that, what was the European summer, so it wouldn't have clashed with most European club football. It was then moved back to January 2021 to avoid the rainy season. And then because of the pandemic, it's been pushed onwards. The next edition is supposed to be in uh, 2023 in Ivory Coast, again in June and July, although, again, that's tropical climate. So whether that'll be moved in the future, Gianni Infantino, the FIFA president, has said he wants... He suggested Afcon being played in the September, November in a, a to, in an extended international window. But for this tournament, it's been tricky because at the moment with the pandemic, uh, players are, are playing a lot of games in a in a short space of time, and clubs, especially Watford, don't want to lose some of their stars for a tournament when they're battling relegation. They won in terms of Emmanuel Dennis. It looks like uh, Ismail Assar will go out. There's there's been rumours as well that. Uh, Odi Nagalo, the Nigeria striker, his Saudi Arabian club won't release him either. So for the moment, the, the players are going. But in terms of the players, 99% of them are absolutely desperate to play in this tournament because it's it's a huge thing in Africa. Uh, I've heard from when people go to Africa, it's absolutely massive for the fans. It's the first thing they talk about. It's all they care about is their national team. And this 2014 tournament, it gives a chance for more teams, there are a couple of first-time qualifiers in the Gambia and Comoros, sides that will probably never have a chance to play at a World Cup. But here they are on the international stage and the players are, are, are itching to get into action. Rob, I'd like to ask you about a couple of nations in particular and I'd like to start with Senegal. They've been FIFA's top-ranked African side for the past 36 months, but they've never lifted the trophy. They've lost it twice in 2002 and 2019. The Federation has re-signed manager Aliou Sissé until the end of the 2022 World Cup, but they've reminded him in no uncertain terms that uh, he needs to win this tournament. So do you think they're capable of doing so? Yeah, definitely. I mean, they've got a fairly uh, more straightforward group than a couple of their uh, opponents um, the, the one question mark they got at the moment is uh, the Napoli defender, their captain, Kaladu Koulibaly. He's been carrying a hamstring injury, so it'll be interesting to see at what point he's fit. Ismail Star, you mentioned as well, but Sadio Mane is there. He's been in, in, in decent form for Liverpool this season. They've got one of the world's best goalkeepers in uh, Edouard Mendy as well. So they've got a good spine uh, with um, the Paris Saint-Germain midfielder, Idrissa Garner-Gay as well. So I think they're definitely contenders for 
for the semi-finals. At that point, you just think who they come up against, how what what shape the team is in, how they're playing. But as you mentioned there, the consistency that they've had for for thirty six months to be top of the ranking, they're playing well. They they've gelled well. The, the the problem with a lot of African countries is they chop and change manager. I think there are there are six managers coming into this tournament who are who have taken charge either during the World Cup qualifiers or after that. Uh, so in terms of preparedness, I think Senegal are, are right there in in the top tier. So it, it, it's basically them and Algeria who are who are probably the, the the two standout squads at the tournament. And I'd also like to ask you about Ghana. They won so many hearts back in uh, 2010 at the World Cup when they uh, went through to the final eight and they played against Australia at that World Cup as well. So uh, it's a team that we remember well. And the manager there, Milovan Rajovic, is back. He's going to be leading through this tournament as well. Uh, And it's a pretty young squad outside of Andre Ayew and Jonathan Mensah, who are two veterans who date back there as well. So uh, how do you see them shaping up considering they've won it four times? They have a proud history, but haven't done so since 1984. Yeah, they're, they're one of the ones who got through the World Cup qualifiers with a bit of a scare. They they were pushed all the way by South Africa and needed a, pe- a penalty at home in the last game. Uh, South Africa actually appealed to FIFA about the refereeing in that game to try and get that match replayed. Um, and yeah, I guess Ghana are going through a transition period. Rajavak came back for his second spell during the World Cup qualifiers to get them over the line. And you mentioned the young squad. I think it's up to a couple of their young players to perhaps step up and and you know write a new chapter in in Ghanaian football history. They've you mentioned uh, the AU brothers. They've got Thomas Partey as well for Arsenal, who's come into good form recently. Uh, but other than that, it's it's a case of perhaps new stars being made. There's uh, the young uh, Rennes winger Kamal Dean Sulemana, there who's uh, who's 19 year olds joined Rennes for you know th- this summer, just gone European summer for about 20 million pounds. Uh, there's also uh, Abdul Fatawu Ishaku of Dreams FC, who's a teenager, who's uh, perhaps going to be the next big thing. He's only 17 years old, but he's been handed the number seven shirt for the tournament. So it'll be interesting to see how much game time he gets. So it, in a way, it's going to be interesting to see how they get him. They open up with a game against uh, Morocco on Monday, who are the sort of the other big team in that group. But other than that, they've got Comoros and Gabon. And of course, with this 2014 tournament, you're likely to see four, well, you will see four third place teams get through. So you'd expect Ghana to get through to the knockout rounds. And after that, you know, it it could open up for them or it could be tricky. Rob Stevens, absolutely fantastic insight into what is uh, one of football's greatest events, AFCON. We can't wait to watch it. We'll be watching closely. Let's hope that uh, Pele's prediction back in uh, Italy 1990 after Cameroon had such a great performance that it was only a matter of time before an African nation won the World Cup. Let's hope that comes true. And maybe uh, this AFCON, Rob, will there'll be a team emerge that uh, will just dazzle enough to uh, to excite the world. And uh, we thank you for your uh, time tonight on box to box and uh, we'll have to get you on uh, maybe back just before the final. Yeah, you're welcome, guys. I mean, AFCON is always a tournament that dazzles in, in one way or another. So uh, all eyes will be on Cameroon for this one and uh, I'm sure it'll be a fascinating tournament. Yeah, hopefully speak again. Sensational. After the break, Derek Dyson, he'll be back and we'll launch into stoppage time. Don't go away. Box to box. Can you believe- for Chemist Warehouse, home of real brands and real savings, and Storage King, the kings of storage, moving and more. And this could be the most crucial goal of all. Uh, welcome back to Box to Box, where the fourth official has instructed the referee to play as much stoppage time as you like. Rob Gilbert is cooling his toes in Bass Strait, and therefore the timer is off. Derek, what have you got for us? I think we wish the timer was off at the Emirates, Michael, when uh, City snatched the. Uh, not a very well-deserved victory, and it's a shame not just for for us as Arsenal fans, but 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 for the Premier League as well, because really that was a opportunity for us to to try and help the others, uh, Liverpool, Chelsea, make it a bit more of a title race. But of course, we went down eventually to City, and we'll we'll maybe talk about a few ins and outs of that shortly. And Chelsea and Liverpool played out a highly entertaining draw uh a classic premier league game but it was 
you know, the winners this weekend, Willem, were Manchester City in more ways than one. No, they certainly were, Derek. But I watched that game as a neutral and I was thinking of you because I knew you'd be very, obviously, very uh, engaged with it. And I thought Arsenal were awesome. I think the framework's there, but I just think the guts of the matter are still just not quite fully formed. And by that, I mean they played an awesome first half. They hung on pretty doggedly once they'd lost Gabriel to uh, the red card. But there's a 10-minute period in there where there's a crazy red card, didn't need to give it away. Uh, Granite Jacker... Uh, was it a penalty? I think as the replays went on, it probably was. Uh, again, not an egregious uh, crime, but it's always him. And then the way you know mouths off and all the players sort of lose their rag behind him. He's meant to be a leader. Uh, so it's just those key moments where Manchester City just basically kept their heads under the radar and then, you know, as champions do, popped up and got a winner, which probably wasn't very well deserved. But in terms of Arsenal, 80% there, but when it really mattered, just not quite mature enough yet, I don't think. It's the best performance uh, for us against Manchester City in a Premier League game. Uh, for some time, of course, we beat them famously in the uh, the FA Cup semi-finals a, a few years ago, and of course, uh, you know the, the the young players in particular. And you've got to also got to give uh, Edu and Arteta some credit with some of the signings that have been made, the likes of. Gabriel at, at the back, Ramsdale, the goalkeeper, who the fans just absolutely. I cannot, I cannot emphasise to you enough how much the fans absolutely love this guy. Uh, they've taken to him straight away, and there were a few question marks when Arsenal decided to pay twenty-five million pounds for, for 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 his signature. Tommy Asu at right back has absolutely made that role a role his own, and uh, he's already becoming a cult hero. I thought. Thomas Partey played probably his best game in a in an Arsenal shirt. He he absolutely controlled that midfield. And then when you look at the likes of Odegaard uh, and Emil Smith Rowe and and Bukayo Saka, who just seems to get better every time we see him. I'm pretty sure Pep Guardiola was standing on the touchline, just making a shopping list for himself. And I don't need to bother doing too much research. I'm just going to take we'll take Bukayo Saka. He, he, he'd get into my team and quite the, like the look of Thomas Partey. Once Fernandinho retires, maybe I'll, I'll have him as well. So, look, a very credible uh, result for Arsenal. And it has caused a bit of a storm uh, in, in the back in the UK. The BT coverage was scathing of the performance of uh, Stuart Atwell, the referee, I think you, you rightly say that probably was a penalty with Bernardo Silva. That sense of inevitability is Xhaka, he was kind of backing away and you could just see what Silva was was going to try and do and he was waiting for that leg to come out and, 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 and there it went. Arsenal, though, aggrieved that uh, on that occasion the VAR technology was used, but when Arsenal had a penalty, and again, if you slow something down and watch it like that, then it, you know, as you said, will it will look more and more like a penalty. Um, you know, they didn't use the VAR there, so it's the inconsistent use of VAR that is actually really getting up people's noses, uh, and 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 Stuart Atwell in particular, some of his decision making, and then in the Chelsea game. Uh, a number of decisions there, but the biggest one after six seconds, Sadio Mane uh, raising his uh, elbow into the face of Aspilicueta. People arguing that had this been any other point during the game apart from in the first 10 seconds, that would have been a red card, should have been a red card, would have had a, uh, a made a big difference on the game from, from Chelsea's point of view. And uh, Edge, what they're saying now is that, that they think that the standards of refereeing is slipping badly in the Premier League. I, I don't watch the games week to week like I used to, so it's really, really hard for, for me to tell. But certainly the VAR is, 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 is in a way isn't helping referees. It's it's highlighting poor refereeing decisions. And even when they do use the VAR, they can't make a decision. Do you, and, and, in, and of course, we didn't really mention it on the show, but Aussie ref Jared Giller has got and joined the party. So the Premier League resorting to bringing in... Well, that was ex- him. Yeah, Jared, was was on, Jared was on for, for Arsenal Man City. What, what, what was he? That was him, yeah. So I thought Stuart Atwell did a, a pretty good job. I yeah. don't think he made any any bad errors. I thought, obviously, all the players and the fans were pretty angsty, but I thought he did a pretty good job. But, yeah, that was Jared on the VAR for that one. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, Willem, I think, uh, Derek, um, what I've noticed about the whole discussion is that um, it seems to me the public's gone... The, the, you know, two years ago, there was this discussion about VARs ruining the game. It, stop, it stops the game get rid of the VAR, you know, uh, let's go back to, you know, ref- refereeing blunders, refereeing mistakes happen, they're just part of the game. Uh, the debate's gone past that. There's now a, an acceptance that VAR is actually a, a part of the game and that, the you know, the, the referral of, of um, um, 
incidents to be reviewed and looked at by VAR is now accepted. It now the debate seems to be focused on the competence of the referees making decisions, especially uh, the ones in the VAR seat. And that's where there's been a lot of uh, debate and criticism about uh, it's not the technology letting us down, it's the people making the decisions. So I guess um, only the Premier League and the Premier League officials uh, can answer whether they think their group of referees are any better or worse than the previous groups. But um, you'd have to say, based on what's happened in the last week or two, uh, there's some serious questions to be asked and answered. We mentioned the uh, the Chelsea game before, and of course, uh, Chelsea were playing uh, without Romelu Lukaku, who had been reintroduced into the side in recent weeks and had managed to get back amongst the uh, banks amongst the goals. But uh, an interview that he gave to uh, Italian television three weeks ago, Jens really uh, put him in the naughty corner to the point where he had to come out and apologise and 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 uh, try and draw a line on, under this. Thomas Tuchel was furious, and from one from one degree, you can see why uh, the player power has been certainly the death knell of many a Chelsea manager over the years. And I'm sure he saw this as a as an opportunity to reassert his authority over the squad. But Romelu. God bless him. He's a player that has always uh, set his mind. And I think that's always been quite refreshing about him. We know that he loves Inter in Italy in particular. Uh, Michael, is there anything wrong with uh, Lukaku making some, let's face it, some particularly non-committal comments about where his future might lie after Chelsea? Well, I mean, there's so many questions on this one. He did say that he wanted to return to Inter Milan. He did say that Thomas Tuchel's tactics were naive and uh, not in the best interests of the team. So he, he's led with his chin to a certain extent. Um, like I said, so many questions. But it appears that Chelsea coach and even the dressing room were completely caught off guard by Lukaku's comments. You know, there's been various articles suggesting that uh, the team had no idea he was unhappy. He's obviously got dropped for the Liverpool game, didn't he? And then, um, and then obviously, um, there's been a lot of sort of dancing around the subject in Thomas Tuchel's interview since then but just um uh, you know even if he does want to go back to Inter Milan can we just uh, have a pause for a moment and recognize that Chelsea paid 97.5 million pounds for Amaru Lukaku that's a hundred million pounds gulp so there's some serious uh detente and uh, brinkmanship and um, relationship massage you needing to go on there to get that one back on track. One club uh, recently, Jens, that has been back in the back in the transfer game has been Barcelona. We spoke about it briefly on the show last week. Uh, Ferran Torres coming uh, from Manchester City and Laporte, the ever outspoken uh, uh, president there, saying that Barcelona are back, baby. They are back. <laughs> Um, and they, they got a bank loan and they, they decided to spend it straight away on Ferran Torres. It's a bit like a, a gambler who gets a, a payday loan or something and then just goes straight straight, <laughs> straight down the bookmakers. <laughs> straight, straight to the roulette wheel. Straight straight, straight there. Of course, we know that the uh, the club are $1 billion in debt, um, but they've spent it on a player, gents, that cannot play. It's only just come to my attention <laughs> this week that Ferran Torres cannot be registered at the moment due to the salary cap. Uh, such is the state of things at, at uh, Barcelona. They're desperately trying to get uh, Dembele to sign a new contract for a lesser salary. When he when he came to the club originally, it was off the back of the Neymar money and they spent 100 million euros on him, gave him a fat contract. They're actually trying to convince him to sign a longer contract, but a smaller contract so that they can get... Uh, Ferran Torres off on the books. We know that Gerard Piquet took a pay cut earlier in the season to al- allow uh, the, uh, the likes of Memphis Depay and others to be added to the squad. They're at a situation now where uh, a, play- a young player like Demir, for example, they can't actually give him another game because if he does play another game, that will trigger, guess what, a new contract for him and more money. So they, they literally have had to bench a player and park a player now because they can't afford to give him the new contracts uh, that his current one says. They're desperately trying to get rid of a few players like Geelong and Titi. Coutinho has been mentioned. I'm sure they would love Newcastle to come in and just hoover up all of these players. Of course, they've already let go Messi and Suarez in the last year. Aguero, of course, and his wages all he will be leaving. But as you can see, you know, um, Barcelona are, everything is just so wafer thin for them at the moment and it is getting down to 
you know, trying to get a few players off the book just so that they can get someone on. But it just goes to show the financial fair play is actually uh, is actually working because Barcelona are not finding a way to uh, to get around it. Um, you know, what, so completely bonkers, uh, uh, Barcelona. And another place that has gone officially bonkers, according to you, uh, Edge, is China. Absolutely. Can I just say, uh, here's one for the uh, for the bots uh, to pick up for the Chinese security agency to attack our website or do whatever they do. But China has gone officially bonkers. And I'm expect to explain why. And it's a very simple thing. It's not a very detailed thing. It's not a very sophisticated thing. It's not a political thing. But the Chinese authorities have banned football players from getting tattoos. Can you believe it? They told the existing national team players, if you've got a tattoo, get it removed or cover it up. Defender Zhang Lingping, who's a regular for the national team, he's played like 50 of their past 60 games, has tattoos all over his body. Yeah, he's got the double sleeves. Oh, no, That's yeah. correct. And he's been asked to paste to cover them up or go to the tattoo removal place. There's an increasing trend of Chinese players having tattoos. A statement was released by the General Administration of Sport of China, and it was titled Suggestions for Strengthening the Management of Football Players, and it lists rules for the national team players going forward. The statement said national teams at all levels will strictly implement the relevant requirements of the management measures and fully demonstrate the positive spirit of Chinese football players and set a good example for society. The national team and the under-23 national team athletes are strictly prohibited from having new tattoos, and those who already have tattoos are advised to remove them. If there are special circumstances agreed by the team, players must cover up the tattoos during training and matches. A strict pro prohibition on recruiting players with tattoos at under 20 level is now in place and also included in the statement. Uh, they've gone officially bonkers, Willem. No, they have. It reminds me of the uh, German hairdressers union who put that letter forward That's last year, Derek. Do you recall that? They might be a uh, tattoo artist of China union complaint. Well, speaking of hairdressers, I know in neighbouring North Korea, men can only have one of 12 haircuts uh, uh, as uh, decreed by Kim Jong-un. It has, it has sort of similar hallmarks. And he's isn't one of the 12. He's not one of the 12. No, that's right. So this kind of has hallmarks of, of that, I suppose, a kind of coercive nature of the uh, the government there and wanting to keep keep the players in their place and, and not to uh, get too far ahead of themselves or get sucked into kind of Western ways. Tattoos, of course, relatively ta uh, taboo uh, in China, I suppose. That, that there's a... Uh, a lot of uh, association with the kind of gang culture uh, in in China, but yeah, as as I just said, um, absolutely mad, and, and and there'd be certainly a number of uh, uh, of European footballers who would have no prospects of playing for the uh, the Chinese uh, national team just based on 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 that criteria. Well, I'm that's for sure. But uh, Edge, those are the little quirky lines for uh, for for this week. Um, probably a good 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 time to wrap it all up. That's it. Thanks. Uh, that is all for today's episode of Box to Box, the show that is everything football from one end of the pitch to the other. To all our listeners, wherever you are, all around Australia and around the world, please stay safe and healthy in the time of Omicron. Together we can prevail. Please subscribe, like, follow, or even tell your friends about us. We'd love to, to have your help in growing our listening audience. And what better way? For for uh, for you, Derek. I know you would have listened to the back catalogue of Box to Boss as you uh, as you sort of meandered through your COVID nineteen infection journey. But thank you for riding shotgun with me today. And Willem, um, as always, your work's appreciated as you start your COVID nineteen journey. I don't know when mine's going to start, but eventually it'll come. But to Damo on the buttons, we're privileged to work with the best. Thanks, guys. And until next week on Box to Box, bye for now.